Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Mama Scotch, a Cree coming of age, has already earned some wonderful praise. Therese Marie Malho, author of Heartberries, has called it powerful and overdue. She goes on to say, the hard and brilliant life breathing on these pages brought me to tears, to joy, and to grace. Kirkus describes it as lyrically written and linked by family, compassion, forgiveness, and hope. Mama Scotch sings out as a modern-day celebration of healing. Daryl McLeod is Cree from Treaty, Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta. His first book, Mama Scotch, received the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Before deciding to pursue writing in his retirement, he was a chief negotiator of land claims for the federal government and executive director of education and international affairs with the Assembly of First Nations. He holds degrees in French literature and education from the University of British Columbia. He lives in Souk, British Columbia. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but please welcome Daryl. <laughs> Tanse Daryl Isiega so Waiotsinia Omisquachi Waskaiga Notsinia Bertha Nigawi Sunny Notawi. So I just did a, a traditional introduction of myself in my language, Cree. And uh, I, our tradition is just to say where we're from and then to name our mother and father. It's good to be here with you. So thank you for coming out on a nice summer evening. Um, and feel free to stick around and chat later. I have friends who told all of their friends uh, who live in LA about the event. So if you happen to be friends of a friend, a friend of a friend, I'd like to hear who that is. <laughs> um, but if you're not, that's fine too. It's just lovely for you to come out. So um, what I thought I'd do this evening is um, talk to you a little bit about how I came to write the book and then talk about the process of, uh, then I'll do a reading, and then talk about the process of actually writing the book and about some of the things that have happened since the book has come out. Does that sound okay? Yes. All right, good, thank you. Well, the path to me writing Mama Scotch was a relatively long one. I started uh, I, the book really starts well before I was born. Um, the second chapter, Hail Mary, Full of Grace, is about the life of uh, the childhood of my mother and um, some of my aunts and great aunts, actually. And um, they were taken away to a residential school in Canada. We had a phenomenon there called residential schools. I think it happened in some places in the United States as well. And uh, so children were taken at a very young age to uh, spend... 10 months, at least 10 months at a time in these schools. Um, and uh, sometimes children ended up staying for 10 years. And the goal, and this was official Canadian government policy, the official goal was to, the language they used in government in the Parliament of Canada was very dramatic. The purpose was to kill the Indian within. 
and teach people a new way of life, to teach them a new language and to assimilate them into a new culture. Um, so the book starts there really with my mother's experience uh, well before I was born. And then it goes into an, a time of my life when I was a baby. And uh, one of the chapters called Machimantui uh, talks about um, an experience when I was a baby when there was another phenomenon that happened in Canada called the 60s scoop um, based on events that happened in the 1960s. So the um, government scooped up a lot of kids um, from uh, indigenous women who were single parents and even just from poor families and basically adopted them out to other families. And um, my family narrowly escaped the 60s scoop. And uh, so the other story uh, that takes place um, really early on is about that phenomenon. Um, but I, So I was born in a remote area of northern Alberta and spent the first six, life of my, six years of my life living in my great-grandfather's trapping cabin with my mother. Uh, my father passed away, unfortunately, when I was uh, six, mother was six months pregnant with me. And so um, we went to live with my great-grandfather in the woods. And uh, there was no electricity or running water. And my memories of that time are idyllic. It was a beautiful place. Um, unspoiled land, really. It was before the oil industry sort of uh, got entrenched there, the oil and gas industry. And uh, so it was unspoiled nature with no electricity, no running water. And it was just our family, our extended family, aunts and uncles, grandparents, cousins, um, hundreds of cousins. <laughs> so I remember it as being quite idyllic. And my mother uh, in the early years was an absolutely wonderful mother, the best doting mother anyone could ever have. So I write about all those things and then I write about the transition that happened um, when the government of Canada and the local provincial government found out that there was oil and gas and gold to be had uh, in the area that we live. They forcefully relocated us to uh, another town and then of course we had to go to school and learn English and all that stuff. And then um, our family just kind of was really impacted in, in a huge way, as you can imagine, our immediate family and then our extended family. And so I write about all of those changes that, that happened uh, during those times. The story, though, Hail, there, there's a lot of triumph in my book, though. The story, Hail Mary Full of Grace, is about my aunts and my great aunts and uh, breaking out of residential school, escaping hatching a plan and then delivering on it and escaping from the residential school and taking my mother with them and never having to go back. So it's quite a, quite a triumphant story. Um, one of the aspects of our culture that you'll find in my book uh, quite frequently is humor. One of my good friends, uh, who's also a writer, said that one of the things she liked about my writing style and the content of my book is that you find humor in places where you least expect to, to find it. And uh, so it sort of helps to carry people through some of the difficult storylines. Um, people ask me what I was trying to accomplish when, when I wrote the book and what the hopes were for my book. And uh, I was really surprised by the answer that came out of my mouth when somebody asked me this at a, at a big, I was, nominated for uh, another award called the Royal Bank of Canada Award for Nonfiction. And uh, so they had a big gala event where they, I was one of the five finalists and they 
had a big gala event for us and uh, took us to Toronto for a week to celebrate and uh, for the five finalists to have time together it was quite wonderful. But one of the presidents of the bank, Royal Bank of Canada at a brunch meeting asked me, asked me directly why I wrote the book. What was my purpose? And I said, for the art of it. And I, I really surprised myself, but that really was my first goal. Um, I have a degree in French literature, and so of course I have I had to do a lot of uh, reading of comparative literature, French literature, Spanish literature, English literature from around the world, as well as English-Canadian literature, classical literature. And so I had entrenched in my mind, like you probably do as well, a sense of what literature is like as an art form. And first and foremost, I wanted to create a work of art. And uh, it sounds like I've succeeded. <laughs> um, that's the assessment that uh, I've gotten from several different sources. Um, <clears throat> another goal that I didn't know I had until I was almost finished the book was that I was conjuring my loved ones who had gone to the other side, bringing them back to life. And um, that really worked as well. Just as I was finishing the book, uh, one of my mentors who helped me with uh, some of the editing made that observation one day. She called me up and said, Daryl, do you realize what you've done with this book? You've conjured, you've brought back to, li brought back to life your loved ones who are gone. And she was absolutely right. I did do that, and that's one of the victories of the book, is uh, I was able to do that successfully. And when I, when I got the book, it was a very uh, emotional moment because I felt that. Um, I, was at, I live in a little house in an isolated area on Vancouver Island in the uh, southwestern part of British Columbia, not far from Seattle. And I was at my little house, it's a, an acreage, there's a long winding driveway up to my place and I was there by myself enjoying a summer day, enjoying the forest and the, the sounds of birds and the ocean. And uh, this young man came sauntering up my driveway carrying a box and I wasn't expecting anybody or any delivery. So I thought, who is this and what, what is this? What's going on? And uh, so he just came to me and handed me this box and got me to sign. And then I opened it and there was my book. <laughs> uh, the hard, the final hard-covered ver version of it. In Canada, it's a hard copy book. And I just took that book and I just held it to my heart. And, and you know, I don't mean to be melodramatic, but I just had a spell of sobbing. I was just overjoyed and overcome with emotion. It was absolutely amazing. Um, another goal for my book is healing. I knew I wanted to write the book to help others heal, but I didn't realize the extent to which writing the book and then distributing the book, I didn't realize how much it would be a healing experience for me. It's been absolutely wonderful. Um, one of the things that you do when you write a memoir is you do an inward journey. And I think that's one of the big differences between writing a memoir and writing an autobiography because you really are getting in touch with your soul. You're doing a deep journey inward, and that's what you're writing about, and that's what you're trying to share. More than, you know, experiences that happened on a certain date in a certain way and that sort of thing. And so I, I did that journey inward, and um, 
it was tremendously healing. I got to examine my relationships with, first and foremost, I guess, my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my older brother, who then became my older sister, uh, underwent a transgendered uh, operation and procedure, and um, with my older sister, who also went through some incredible drama, drama in her life, and surprisingly with my father, who, like I said, had passed away before I was born, but um, the writing process really made me think about my father more and sense his presence more and actually led me to grieve the, my father's loss like I had never done. It didn't occur to me. I mean, I didn't physically see him, and uh, so that was a very powerful and healing thing. So it was quite wonderful. A few of the, the, the um, idea for writing the book, the, the motivation sort of came in waves over the years and started very young when I was in second year university. There's a wonderful Canadian author you may have heard of. Her name is Margaret Lawrence. And uh, the book of hers that really spoke to me was called The Diviners. And I still remember the opening line. It's a simple line, but a very effective line. It's, um, the river flowed both ways. And it just captivated my imagination in so many ways. And then reading the book, it's about the life of a writer, and that's what she does. She sits by her window, a big picture window, and watches the river and gets inspired as she watches the river and then writes her books as she sits there. And I thought, I was about 22 years old, and I thought, that sounds amazing. I'd like, I'd like to do that one day. I'd like to be that writer, sitting by the window watching the, the water, the movement of the water, and being inspired by it. And um, that's what I actually do. I, in my little house in Souk, I have a big picture window, and I, but I, look, I overlook the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is the body of water that lies between Canada and uh, the United States, between Canada and the Olympic Mountains in uh, Washington State. So I'm inspired by a different body of water than, than she was, but it's kind of like a river. As the tide comes and goes, the water moves and opposite directions and sometimes, of course, when the tide is changing, it, it flows both ways. It's quite wonderful. So that was the first phase of my inspiration to write and I just sort of tucked it away in the back of my mind and it just stayed there, kind of dormant for quite a few years. And, uh, well, for a couple of years and then there was another wave of inspiration. When I was studying French, um, I used to sit around talking with my French professors who became friends uh, a married couple, and they became mentors. They were quite a bit older than me. And uh, after I told them some stories of my childhood and youth and about my family, they said to me that I should write my stories down because they were stories that only I could tell. And they were an important part of the Canadian fabric, Canadian history, that people should know about, and that certainly should be documented. And I really respected these people and so that was another piece that I just tucked away and stored in my memory banks and in my heart for future reference, I guess. And then the third wave was when I really started writing. And it was um, probably about 15 years later. I had become a teacher and then a school principal. And I was working as a school principal in a remote community in northern British Columbia, an indigenous community. Uh, 80 kilometers up a logging road from the closest town, a rustic logging road and a community of 200 people on a beautiful lake in the mountains, and uh, probably the favorite or the most treasured 
experience in my life was being there with those people. It was absolutely wonderful. And so as you can imagine, uh, there wasn't a lot of entertainment going on in that community. So we had time to sit around and talk in the evening. And we used to sit around and tell stories. And there was one elder, her name was Catherine Bird. And after I had told her a few stories from my childhood, she kind of lectured me. She sat up straight and said, Daryl, you have to write these stories down. And she had a finger just like my mother. <laughs> you have to write these stories down. They'll help people someday. And it was one of those magical moments when I knew that it wasn't just Catherine Bird talking to me. It was the universe. It was a higher power giving me direction. And I knew then that I would definitely write. And I started writing. But I thought I was going to write stories for children, children's stories, short stories. And uh, so that's what I started doing. And I would write a story of maybe one or two pages and then just tuck it away. And I did that maybe with about ten, for about 10 stories. And I just tucked them away for years. And then when I knew I was about to quit working full-time, I had a very challenging career, which I write about in my second book, um, a fulfilling and rich career, but uh, loaded with interesting challenges. Um, when I knew I was about to leave full-time work, I decided to take a course in writing memoir at the, a university called Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And I got an amazing, an amazing instructor named Betsy Warland, who has become a friend and a lifelong mentor. And uh, she had this technique uh, for helping people to go within to do some deep soul searching and dredge up rich experiences um, in your life and write about them in a really meaningful way and examine what was really happening to you at that time and how did the experience change you and so writing memoir was about getting in touch with that how pointed experiences in our lives change us and um, and then looking at how we remember those things and how we feel about those things now and what place those memories have in our lives now where are they where are those characters where do we keep them how do we relate to them and the characters and experiences so um, with that mentor Betsy Warland over about a period of a year, I wrote 26 short stories. And yeah, quite prolific. And it was all based on pointed experiences in my life. That was sort of the starting point, was identifying a pointed experience and then I'd write about it. And uh, so Betsy helped me to, she gave a number of courses and a, another course of hers was about um, dealing with manuscripts, how to cobble together a manuscript when you have all the various pieces that you would need, all the composite pieces. So I put together a manuscript, and uh, one of the most painful parts of that work was uh, a workshop where Betsy asked us to bring our manuscript in physical form, printed it out, printed out, and then to spread it on the floor in this large room, kind of in the order we thought it would be put together, and then to take one third to one half of it out to eliminate a third to a half of it. And when you put your heart and soul into something that was a very, it's a very, very hard thing to do. But it's a rich experience and nothing is lost. I mean, she asked me, she asked us to just set those parts aside for future reference and maybe for use in something else. Because of course, every writer thinks that there were some brilliant pieces in there, right? Your, your favorite babies are in there and uh, you don't wanna lose them. 
So um, cobbled that together and then Betsy recommended that I work with a fiction writer to give my manuscript more depth and uh, things like descriptive, better descriptive clauses, more thorough descriptions, um, more better scene development, even throw in some dialogue if it was appropriate and it was in many places. And um, then to look at the plot line because even though it's the story of my life, there's still a plot line. So getting in touch with what would be the plot line of a, of a book and uh, seeing how I dealt with it and how I portrayed it and did I do a, a good job and did it flow the way it should, that sort of thing. So, so with that, I'm just going to, I'll launch into the reading. I'm reading from a chapter called Beyond the Athabasca, which is the last chapter of the book. And um, in this chapter, Daryl, his Aunt Rosie and Uncle Charlie drive Daryl's deceased mother, Bertha, from Edmonton to Smith, a two and a half hour drive north, because they didn't have the money to pay for a funeral home to transport the body and stay in Smith for two days for a wake or drive back and forth. Mentioned in this passage are Daryl's elder sister, Debbie, and her first husband, Rory, who were Daryl's surrogate parents for a few years. Daryl's four younger sister, sorry, Daryl's four younger siblings are simply referred to as the kids in this passage. So here we go from beyond the Athabasca. Just have a sip of water. Okay, from beyond the Athabasca. Panicked jackrabbits did their zigzag hop pattern along or across the road, scarlet blotches and patches of brown fur every few kilometers. Soon their fur would turn white. I looked in the rearview mirror at the metallic gray coffin, then glanced at Auntie Rosie and Uncle Charlie sitting beside me on the bench seat. I couldn't believe this was happening. I had fantasized about a return to Smith that was filled with triumph, with Mother showing me off and bragging, this is my son. He went to university. He's a teacher now, Mama Scotch. But instead, I felt humiliation and shame coming on. Tongues would be wagging and clucking. It's Bertha Cardinal, remember her? She's the one who rode through town naked on a bicycle, shouting, Lady Godiva rides again. And that's her boy. What was his name? He looks healthy. Are those his real teeth? Her oldest girl died mysteriously, and her eldest son, Greg, well, he had an operation to become a girl, took some weird name like Katrina. Heavy gray clouds, the wind had picked up. Was it going to rain? Out of my side window, I caught a glimpse of the ditch. Four crows settled onto a deer carcass. The speedometer read 110. I lifted my foot. There was no hurry. I turned briefly to Auntie. Who'd have ever thought we'd be doing this? Top way. She smiled and nodded as she lit another cigarette. The sulfur from the match tickled my nose. I hope Mother doesn't mind riding with us like this. Ma, well, better than in one of them hearsts with them weird men in purple suits, Auntie answered. That's for sure. I know she'd rather be with us, I said with a dry chuckle. Uncle Charlie laughed. You guys are crazy. Well, Mother always did see the funny side of things. 
We passed the sign for Rochester. My grade nine debating partner, Diane Sasnowski, had lived there. I wondered if she would remember me. Soon we would pass through Athabasca. I loved the rolling hills with their thick cover of spruce trees just before the town. So many days I had taken the kids for walks through there and down to the water to escape. As we watched the muddy river glide by, I fantasized about taking them to a place Rory and Debbie had taken me to, its source in the Rocky Mountains, where the runoff from the Athabasca Glacier fed into an exhilarating turquoise stream in Jasper National Park. I wondered if Mother had ever gone there. Then a torrent of bad memories, the time I had won the public speaking contest at school, but forced the kids to watch Love Story four nights in a row to avoid the drunken craziness at home. Oh my God, I had pushed Mother down the stairs there the year Debbie gave me my first guitar, and the spring day I abandoned the kids. I had cried on the Greyhound all the way to Calgary. I wanted this trip to be over so I could get on with my life my beautiful life on the West Coast. Athabasca, Island Lake, Hondu, then Smith. Smith, two nights there, that's all I could take. Then a day in Edmonton, then home, back to Vancouver. I fixed my gaze on the road. I thought about L'Etranger, the novel by Albert Camus that had shaken me in my second year French course. The book's opening sentence was, Aujourd'hui, maman est morte. Today, mother is dead. Would I be like Merceau, the main character? He didn't cry at his mother's wake, and he went out partying the next day. The only thing that made sense to him in the whole experience was that nothing made sense. He didn't relate to any of it, the religious rites and doctrine, the staged mourning, the ceremony and burial. I hadn't empathized with his character when I first read the novel, but now... With each passing hour, I did. A luminescent green sign warned us that the Smith turnoff was 30 kilometers ahead. In 45 minutes, we would be there. I took my foot off the accelerator again, and he turned to look at me. Who the hell would do this? Who would drive their mother's coffin around in a cargo van? What would they say, all my relations and the white folks in Smith? Geez, can't even afford a hearse, or is he too cheap? And to think, his mother bragged about him being a teacher in Vancouver. I sighed and then mumbled, Well, I guess things could be worse. Oh, yeah? What you mean? Uncle Charlie took the bait. Well, I read a story in school about an American family who had to take their mother's body halfway across their county in a horse-drawn wagon to bury her in her hometown. It took them nine days, and they almost lost the coffin twice, once while fording a river and then again in a barn fire. And to think, they were flat broke, no money for embalming, and no ice or refrigeration. You can imagine the stench. Wah, wah, be awful, eh, Daryl? I guess we're lucky. Only a couple hours drive. Ma, is that where you got the idea? Auntie smiled. The random stands of spruce trees around the picturesque cemetery confirmed it. We were entering Smith. Clusters of children with dark skin moved off the road to let us through. Cousins for sure, even though they wouldn't know me. The cloud cover was thick, but I knew it wasn't going to rain. Another whirlpool of memories. 
La France's general store, now called something else, shopping with mother for frozen hamburger and canned peas. Leonard, La France, the, the son's uh, Smith's Prince Charming, never spoke a word to her and would shoo us kids away after we had spent our nickels and dimes on candy. The three-story Smith Hotel Cafe, Jack Ma, mother's friend and former boss, she used to chuckle when recounting how she used to tease him about his calling out of the menu each day, most to meet the loss of beef ham bone steak, or at the Dominion Day Fair, peanut popcorn clack jack jelly apple, and how he in turn kidded her about her English pronunciation and mimicked her awkwardness when serving tea and pie to the who's who of Smith. The night I ran to get Mother out of the bar because Uncle Andy was bothering Debbie, the interminable seconds it had taken for the bartender to come to the door after I rang the buzzer. We drove by the small wooden church, now painted blue with a simple white steeple. Mother had loved the original Gothic-style church, but it had burned to the ground the year after Greggy was assaulted outside of it. I still recalled Mother's terrified voice yelling, The church is on fire! at five in the morning, followed by a resounding clang when the huge bell hit the ground. She and Ed had speculated over coffee that morning what a bad omen the fire was for Smith. Did the church burn because of Father Jal, I had wondered at the time, his foul mouth and bad behavior? Mother had hated him. Coco, such a pig, she would say. He went with my sister-in-law and then bothered me after your dad died. Tomorrow we would go to church. Tomorrow there would be a proper green hearse for Mother's coffin. Tomorrow, at this time, it would all be over. Well, almost over. First the church, then the graveyard, then what? The longest night of my life, or would that be tonight, at the wake? The stage was set. People had done this before. The furniture had been cleared away from the living room, and the sheer curtains were tied back to reveal the long, dark, wooden coffee table on which Mother's coffin would be placed. Rows of stackable plastic chairs were set up facing it. Cushions for kneeling sat in a straight line on the floor. Candles of different shapes and sizes flickered all around. How eerily familiar it all seemed, just like in L'Etranger. Uncle Charlie directed how the coffin should be positioned. Odd music in the background, not the usual Johnny Cash or Loretta Lynn. When I recognized the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da rhythm of habanera from the opera Carmen, I was sure I had become delusional. The women were busy in the kitchen preparing sandwiches and coffee for the wake. The men, my cousins and uncles, were watching TV in the extra bedroom their eyes glued to the screen. I sat with them. It wasn't an illusion. The chorus had rallied behind a voluptuous Carmen as she sang, L'amour est un oiseau rebelle que nul ne peut apprivoiser. I loved that line and remembered translating it for my good friend Milan. Love is a defiant bird that cannot be tamed. Thank you. Check how we're doing for time here. Okay. So I was going to talk to you briefly and then about what's happened since the book was as was released, and then we can have some questions and answers. Um, the book was released in Canada in September of uh, last year, September 2018, 
and um, it got really good uptake right away. I was invited to literary festivals um, in about six Canadian cities. I did six Canadian cities in six weeks in uh, October and November. And then I was nominated for uh, the Governor General's Literary Award for nonfiction in November and uh, found out in December that I actually won it. And then I was nominated for another prize. Uh, but the experience of winning the Governor General's Award was quite something. I was alone at home in my little house when I got an email. I have this bad habit of checking my email first thing in the morning. I don't know how many of you do that. <laughs> but I saw this email saying congratulations in the, in the title, and I didn't want to stay home to, by myself to read it, so I went to the coffee shop where I do a lot of my writing and editing to be surrounded by friends, and uh, then I opened it and saw that I had been nominated for this prize. And then a few weeks later, I was in Whistler, Canada for a, a, a writing festival. And um, I got a message at 7 o'clock in the morning to call Ottawa and uh, the Canada Council for the Arts. So I did, and this young lady on the phone was really excited and was thrilled to tell me that I actually won. And uh, that was quite something. That was a big day. That evening, uh, I had to pull it together because that evening I had my reading in Whistler, and then I was—I'm a jazz singer too—and I was doing also doing a jazz performance. So it was a quite a day. It was a really emotional day, but that's become typical of the types of days I've had since the book has come out. Um, it's the kinds of things that are happening are all positive, but all over the map. Uh, one of the coolest things was um, at a festival in Toronto. Uh, I was signing books afterwards, and I was the last one signing books, and everybody else had gone. And I was just sitting at this table, and I was just getting ready to pack up and leave, and this lady appeared out of nowhere. She was petite, and she looked a bit frail, but when I looked into her eyes, her eyes were lively and energetic. And um, during my presentation at, in Toronto, I, one of the things I do often is acknowledge elders, especially if there are a lot of elders in the room, and there were. So she thanked me for acknowledging elders. She said that was a wonderful thing to do. And I said to her, well, how old are you? And she looked at me and said, I'm 106. Yeah, it was pretty wild. So I went around the table, of course, and asked her if I'd have a hug. And she said, yes, I'd love to have a hug. So it was quite wonderful to hug a 106-year-old woman who wanted my book signed. And I mean, it was an inspiration to see somebody who was 106 and she was out on her own on a Sunday morning in the winter in Toronto uh, for a book launch, a book festival. It was great. It was really quite amazing. Um, another day I got a call from a, a guy who's from the same tribe as me and he has his own media business, his own blog and the radio station and stuff like that. And he asked if he could come from Winnipeg out to Souk, where I live, to interview me, which is about a two-hour plane ride. It's about $500 each way. So I said, sure, if you, if you want to do that, uh, I'd be happy. I'd be honored. And uh, he said, there's one catch. I'm bringing my mother. Uh, she's an 83-year-old Cree woman, and she's a fluent speaker. And I thought, I use a lot of Cree in my book. The title Mama Scotch is just the beginning. There are a lot of other Cree words. And um, so I thought I was in trouble. I thought she was going to scold me for incorrect usage of Cree. <laughs> and uh, so I was nervous the whole time, but um, she actually wanted to thank me for the book because it had brought her some healing. 
she was a victim of a residential school. And when she read the story about residential schools and the victory that my great aunts and uh, who would be her contemporaries um, experienced, she just found it incredibly healing. But she also had um, some terrible experiences happen in the residential school that she had blamed herself for. And they happened when she was about 12 years old. And for 70 years, she had been carrying around this horrible guilt. And so I deal with the topic of um, childhood sexual abuse in my book quite extensively. And one of the things that I clear about is you know, it's the voice of experts that I've put into my book. And it's that children are never to blame. Children never are at fault when something like that happens. And so she just found incredible relief in that. And uh, so she wanted to thank me for being candid and for dealing with a, a difficult topic like that in my book. Um, it's also brought amazing healing with uh, my family, uh, which is, like I said earlier, has been uh, really blown apart when we were relocated. Um, three days after my book was launched in Canada, I got a, an email, well, actually a dramatic message on Facebook from the daughter of one of my first cousins. And um, the, my cousins all still live in our little village back home, and uh, so there are hundreds of them. But um, we have a one-room library and a librarian who maybe works half a damn month. But she found the librarian and told her she, her cousin had written a book and she needed it now. And the librarian brought it in within two days. And my cousin read it within three. And then she made this dramatic posting on Facebook. My cousin wrote this book. And uh, it's going to heal my, the, she said it could have been my life that was on the pages of that book. And it's going to heal our family and bring us back together. So that was wonderful. And then uh, for the Thanksgiving weekend, of, uh, Canadian Thanksgiving is earlier. It's in the second week of October, usually the first long weekend in October. And um, my family called me to come to Smith. They had heard about the Governor General's award, the nomination. And so they wanted me to come home and, for a celebration. So I went home on short notice and uh, they organized a feast for me. 50 of my cousins came together and cooked uh, moose meat and deer meat, rabbit, bannock, uh, and uh, blueberry pie from blueberries they had picked the summer before. And we just had an amazing feast. It was absolutely wonderful. And there have been so many other things. Uh, I, the passage I just read to you, <clears throat> I read it uh, at an event in uh, Minneapolis where I had my US book launch uh, a few weeks ago. And um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, I read a passage about going through Athabasca. And this, ro this town was Rochester. And my grade nine debating partner was from there, Diane Sasnowski. And I wonder if she would remember me. Well, I hadn't seen or heard from Diane Sasnowski since I left Athabasca at the end of grade nine. And as you can imagine, that was a few years ago. And when I got home to my, back to my hotel room that night, I opened my Facebook and Messenger. There was a message from Diane Sasnowski the same day I had done that reading. And it was just like something from the Twilight Zone. And it turns out a friend of hers had read my book and had read that passage and passed to the book on to her and said, you have to read this book. And uh, so she did. And uh, we've, so we've been reunited and it's like we've never been apart. She was a great support and a wonderful friend then. Um, we were a great debating team. I think we should reunite. <laughs> Maybe take on some politicians. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's it's been an amazing ride. 
uh, and being here with you tonight is, is a big part of that ride too, so thank you for coming out. Yeah, so we have time for a few questions or comments. Anything you'd like to say? Welcome. I was an adult uh, when mother died. I think it was uh, about, I was about 28. Yeah. Thank you for coming. No, I don't. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right, so um, all of that is, is uh, dealt with in the book, including why I don't have children, is dealt with quite uh, extensively and thoroughly in the book. Um, and it's not the reason many of you may think, but <laughs> anyway, um, it's, um, our family fell apart, our extended family, and then um, unfortunately, mother uh, ran into some difficult, she had some difficult problems when we were little. And she ended up leaving home when when I was only 10 years old. And um, the younger children went into foster care, the four young, my four younger siblings. And, but I was I went to live with my older sister, Debbie. And uh, she had already married. She was only 17 at the time herself. But she got married at age 15. And uh, she was living with her husband. And she took me to live with her instead of me going to a foster home. I was very lucky. Yeah. Right. I am, I've just started writing fiction. I'm writing my third book. I finished the manuscript for my second book, which is a sequel to the first one about two years ago when I submitted it to the publisher. I had a two-book deal, so I knew they were going to buy it. And, um, but the, the process is long, so um, while that book was stewing with them, uh, I started writing my first work of fiction. And it's a very different process. I think in some ways it may have been easier um, to write it as fiction. There's less accountability, less uh, likelihood of troubling anyone, because they think, well, it's just fiction. Maybe it happened and maybe it didn't. Um, a lot of people do write fiction that's very autobiographical and they won't say the extent to which it is autobiographical, but it, it's the story of their life, including famous writers like Alice Munro. Um, there's a, a book of hers, I think the title is Who Do You Think You Are? That's quite autobiographical, apparently. Um, so I might've had more latitude. Um, I don't think it would've been as healing and I don't think it would have gotten the attention it did. I needed to tell part of, I needed to tell what happened to my family in Canadian society and how my family was impacted in Canadian, I should say North American society um, because it started with colonization by the British, right? And the British colonized all of North America and um, devastated all of North America in the process. Um, so I wanted people to know that this was real, this was factual. This happened to real people. There, another problem in Canada is that a lot of people know about the legacy of residential schools and colonization, but they tend to think that, oh, that happened, why are you guys still whining? That happened hundreds of years ago. Like, why, why do you still have issues? 
And um, I wanted them to know it wasn't hundreds of years ago. The loss of our language, for example, my mother and father and all of my aunts and uncles were fluent speakers of our language. It was their first language, their mother tongue, Cree, or what we, we call it, Nehio. Uh, I speak some. I'm not a fluent speaker. Uh, my nieces and nephews don't speak any. So within two generations, our language has, in our family has been effectively lost. Fortunately, Cree is one of the languages in Canada that has a good chance of, stand, of surviving because there are so many speakers and it's possible to pick it back up. And I, I have been doing that. I've been teaching myself. Um, so that's a long-winded uh, answer to your question, but I needed people to know that this is real. So the, the residential schools legacy, uh, the 60 scoop legacy, uh, the legacy of sexual abuse. I also deal with themes like um, uh, suicide, youth suicide in my book, and I needed people to know that that's based on real lived experience. Hi. Yes. That's a wonderful question, and you're the first one that has asked it in all of the events that I've been to. But it's a very um, important question for me because um, I have a bittersweet relationship with English. Um, I'm glad that I've mastered it, but it's also, my mastery of English has caused me to be ostracized by some of my people as well. Because I, I speak a... <laughs> My English is ed an educated English, and it's it, to my people back home. It sounds to my cousins. It sounds refined, and it sounds like I'm being a snob or being elitist when I speak the way I speak. But it's because of the my brother-in-law who raised me for a few years. I mean, he used to drill me at the at the dinner table, you know, and correct my English, correct my grammar, and correct correct my pronunciation. Uh, so I. I mean, I should be grateful to him that I speak a polished English. Um, but it's, it's been a bittersweet re relationship. I, I've learned to speak French. I'm fluent in French and Spanish. And I feel much more comfortable, personally, emotionally, speaking either of those languages. And one of the other things that my book has taught me, uh, writing the book, is that Cree is my mother tongue, too. Uh, because it was the only language I heard when I was growing up, until, up until about age six, up until I started school. So everything would have been said to me in Cree. And uh, so it's my mother language too. And part of the reason I'm learning it is I have this theory that I'll be more complete and that it may even affect uh, my artistry. Because you probably know that um, lang mother tongue and, the, and learned languages are, or lang second and third in languages after second and third are on different sides of the brain. And uh, so I have this theory that if I master Cree, it'll bring to life even more the artistic side of my brain. I'm hoping. <laughs> That's a great question, and it's one I haven't discussed at all. Any of my events? Any other questions or comments?
Okay, well, I'm going to leave you with a poem that I wrote. I was invited to an event in Montreal, Canada, and um, I was part of the opening ceremony, and for the opening ceremony, they wanted us to deal with the theme of social inequality, which is a big topic, but they wanted, they gave, gave us each four minutes. And so I thought, okay, well, how can I deal with a topic like social inequality in four minutes? And I had heard that there were going to be um, some, what do they call them, slam poets there, who would, uh, so I thought, well, I'm a little bit old to be a slam poet, but I'll give it a shot. But I, I didn't do slam poetry. I wrote, wrote a poem, and I, I'm not a poet, so I apologize for this, but uh, I wanted to do it. And it uh, starts with a bit of drama. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. That isn't part of the poem, but it sets the stage. My mother used to sing that in the wee hours after she'd had a few drinks. And there in our little shack, you know, in a rural part of northern Alberta, northern Canada, it was ironic, you know, her singing about a Mercedes-Benz and Porsches and all that kind of stuff. But I knew that she, it was her own little protest about social inequality. So here's my poem, and it doesn't even have a title. I don't need a Porsche, Mercedes, or Lamborghini. A Chevrolet or a dog sled will do. I can even travel on foot sometimes. I don't need souffles, fondues, or portobellos, although I can enjoy it all and deserve to. I don't need equality or even want it. I just want the freedom, ability, and wherewithal to enjoy what is rightfully mine, my territory and all it brings to me, Mother Earth, traditional foods, knowledge, love, and healing. Don't get me wrong, please. I'm as hedonistic as the next person, I love luxury, abundance, possessing treasures. Just don't let your good fortune be at the expense of mine. There's enough for all of us. I don't need to hoard money or wealth, more than I could ever count or spend in my lifetime. Paper, Bitcoin, precious metals I can't eat or even take solace from. Give me back my honor, my dignity, and peace of mind. Then we'll be equal. When I can look you in the eye, and make you be the first to lower your gaze. I don't need equality, or even want it. I just want the freedom, ability, and wherewithal to enjoy what is rightfully mine, my territory and all it brings to me, Mother Earth, traditional foods, knowledge, love, and healing. Ksamaga, hi, hi. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.